get rid of the writing. They're not going to read anything. You can have one number on there or maybe one word um, and then just talk to the slide. But also images, so images, illustrations. How can you sum your point in a picture? Because I'm not going to say all of them, but a lot of them will learn visually. So try now. Obviously, we can't do anything kinesthetic and they're going to be listening to me anyway. So I'm going to try and hit as many points as I can without using writing. The other one is players love to themselves. They absolutely love it and they love to look at photos of themselves. So actually getting footage of them, you know, in the gym or getting food or something and then playing that because the boys will listen. They'll have a good laugh. Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via our YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm where I debrief the recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favourite podcast app. Hello and welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. My name is Jack McLean. I'm your host and tonight... Carmen Colmer on as our guest. She's the head of performance of Perth Glory. And before we start today's episode, our mission here at Prepare Like a Pro is to empower aspiring athletes and staff with practical knowledge from some of the industry's most inspiring individuals and to strengthen the AFL community. So if you're new to the show, please show support by following us on Instagram and subscribing to the podcast. We're on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. Our uh, topic for today will be all about sports science. So more specifically, how training load can determine the best recovery method for athletes. So whether you're an athlete and you're looking to add some training methodology to your recovery routine to help your performance or for all the high performance staff tuning in, make sure to stay uh, with us throughout the whole way as there'll be some nuggets and gems to, to add to your practice. But welcome, Carmen. Thanks for jumping on. Thanks so much for having me, Jack. And I'm sure most listeners tuning in are well aware of, of your work, but for those that uh, haven't heard you are, do you mind giving us a, uh, a background comment of, of everything you've achieved so far? Sure, I'll, um, I'll try and keep it short. Uh, so, yeah, probably back in the 2013, decided to do my undergrad in um, sports science and sport coaching. And then in that time, I, I went over to Germany and... Um, uh, did a semester there at the German Sport University, which really sparked my interest in sports science, probably more in the physiology area. And when I got back, I was lucky enough to get an internship at the uh, Victorian Institute of Sport, where I was working closely with swimming, cycling, and track and field. Started my master's during that. Started an internship at the Rebels, where I did part of my master's research there. And then off the back of that, once I finished that, I was lucky enough to get postgraduate scholar position in physiology at the Australian Institute of Sport, which was probably one of the best experiences I've had. Worked with some really great people and, um, of course, an, an outstanding setup there. And then, fortunately, there was a PhD advertised literally about five minutes down the road at the Brumbies, and that was in complex systems analysis. So looking at how um, tactically players position themselves around the field and um, accounting for constraints such as um, environmental constraints, uh, the opposition uh, potentially playing home and away and so on. So I was there as an, Im an embedded PhD student uh, for two and a half seasons 
and uh, I was working as a sports scientist there whilst doing my research. And then um, as I was in my third season, an opportunity came up with the Broncos and my supervisor and boss at the time encouraged me to to go for it. You can go part-time with your PhD. You're going to get a lot more out of you know, actually starting um, your career and working full-time and then finishing your PhD on the side. So moved to Brisbane at the start of 2020, had a great experience there. We didn't have a very successful year and of course COVID hit, which didn't help. However, I loved my time at the Broncos. And then uh, in my second season at the Broncos, again, an opportunity came up overseas. This was at uh, the 76ers in the NBA. So took that, which was of course an amazing opportunity did two seasons there as the director of sports science, uh, which is just, it's exciting. It's the entertainment industry. It's, it's everything you could imagine. Um, but at the end of that, I decided I did want to come home for personal reasons, mainly being my partner was back in Australia. So I came back here and then was fortunate enough to get uh, my current position as head of performance for the, the Perth Glory Football Club and the, the men's A-League team. Wow, what a what a range of different sports and experiences all around the world. Take us back to when you were studying in Germany. What what, what sort of caught your eye in that sport science side of things? Like, was it a, a sport that you saw? Was it a, like the applied side? Was it the science sort of uh, research side that uh, tickled your fancy? You know, take us through. I guess for the sport scientists that are interested, or maybe perhaps doing their bachelor currently. What was something that you saw and what, what were the sort of pathways that you knew at that day as a sports scientist? The German Sport University is quite an institution. It's uh, apparently the hardest university to get into in, in Germany. So they have, um, not only do you need to get into, uh, into school and academic merit, you need to write an essay, but you also need to pass all these physical tests. So it's, it's quite different. Uh, so a lot of the, yes. And I, I believe it's, 19 tests in one day that you need to pass and you can only fail two you can't fail the first one or the last one so after 12 hours of doing all these physical tests such as the 100 meter sprint swimming and so on uh, you then need to do two two or three clubs on a run depending on whether you're male or female and you can't fail that obviously under a certain amount of time so fortunately as an exchange student i did not need to do the physical tests so what you find there is just it's a breeding ground for very sport and athletic oriented people and there were also a lot of athletes that trained there so the the gymnastic setup was made to accommodate athletes so they had a silver medalist professional athlete who trained there they had quite a few other think weightlifters as well that would train there but they also had the second largest water IOC anti-doping lab in the world was based there so the time they claimed to with all the Sochi samples were sent there so one of the subjects I chose was actually called anti-doping so I would work in the lab there basically just learning how to to assess different samples for different illegal substances such as plasticides or, or just you know high levels of certain things or trying to spot things that maybe we wouldn't have thought of before. So that was really the catalyst for my interest in, in that space, growing mm-hmm. more on the physiology side of things. 
And um, yeah, obviously an outstanding experience overall, but that's probably the, the standout. Internships and, and, I, and I guess also doing a PhD embedded in elite sport. How important do you think they are for setting yourself up for a successful career in, in elite sport? Super important. And and I think um, a lot of people say that Australians, you know, we, we're so good at sports science and, and we somewhat pioneered sports science. Of course, in Europe as well, I think they're outstanding at sports science. And I think the US is still catching up and that's no discredit to sports scientists there. I just think the system's different. And the advantage that we have is we do have these PhD programs, which I think are mutually beneficial for both parties because the sport gets someone to come in who's cheap, but they also get research, which they can apply to their practice. And then, of course, we don't have the resources and the funding in Australia that they do, say, potentially in the, the US. So it's not easy to just walk into a job and expect to get paid a lot. So, of course, you need to pay your dues. So as a PhD student, you can be working full time, still get some money to live off from the government. You can be learning a hell of a lot practically and theoretically with the research that you're doing and you're gaining all this experience on the way. And I think that I would say that that's why we have really, I said, I guess, pioneered sports science in a way, but then also excelled as well. So I think it's really, really important if you want to work in sport, like truly want to work in sport, then doing a PhD in sport is probably my, my best advice. And obviously it comes with its challenges um, when you, did you transfer from the Brumbies to the Broncos and maintain your PhD commitments, even though maybe part-time you were still pursuing the PhD at that stage or was it, if I got that wrong, you were, it, was, it was complete and yet was your a uh, part-time role at Broncos and the PhD was done? So I went full-time at Broncos, nothing to do with my PhD. My PhD, I just had to move down to part-time hours, so which I'm still on part-time hours now. I yeah. have managed to publish two studies. I've just got two more I need to publish. So all the data's there. That was the key point that I'd collected all my data and um, and I'd already I had the framework for my thesis and um, all my studies set out. Um, and then, yeah, in that time, I have actually managed to publish two studies. So still slowly ticking away. It is obviously a lot easier when you are still full-time with the PhD and I was fortunate enough to have a really understanding supervisor who would give me that time. So you don't need to come in today, just just work on your PhD today. But no, the, the Broncos was completely separate to my PhD. Right. And how have you found that, juggling full-time work and you know, getting more leadership positions in your full-time capacity while still pursuing your PhD? Yeah, look, the PhD definitely um, moves lower down on the priority um, list. So it's a lot of it is just about discipline, really just trying to get it done um, when you have time. So trying to make time for that. So days off and so on. But it is challenging. There are times when the last thing I want to do on a, on a day off or if I've got a few hours in the afternoon is to start getting stuck into PhD work. But the reality is I actually enjoy the topic um, and it is becoming more popular these days. So there is more research coming out. So I always enjoy reading new new papers and so on but yeah the, the discipline is the key there and now that you've seen a few different environments like from a practical sense i guess for the high performance managers listening in or, or those in senior positions like 
how can we influence our environment, do you think, and, and put constraints in place to, to help for team-based sports and, and regular performance? And do you mean from like an on-field setting or do you mean within the organisation? We'll, we'll go with organisation to start. So the organisation is probably not my area of expertise. That's probably more Shane Mahan, who you've had on the podcast before, so he's actually doing his PhD in that at the moment. So whereas my research is a lot more about constraints and how that that affects performance on the pitch, and then, of course, so looking at how that, that shapes performance during a game and then potentially applying that to training and, and say, mim- mimicking those demands or understanding what a successful um pattern of play looks like and then trying to emulate that in training right okay so that will you work closely obviously sports science by trade how closely would you work with like the performance analysts at the club uh to you know and then the coaches to build those training drills out um so it's still when i was there it was still a work in progress um i have done a bit with the performance analyst and say at the Broncos where I pulled out a lot of the data myself but it was more just um just trying things out there was never actually anything that came about from it um so it's still a work in progress let's say because every time I've gone somewhere new it's been a completely different sport so I can't apply any of the findings I have to to um to that environment I can't say oh yeah well look when we get a line break we need to do this when I'm talking to an NBA coach. So, um, yep. yeah, probably more relevant to rugby union. Of course. And then going back to your, your career journey, who have been some strong influences or mentors, if you like, that have helped sort of shape your philosophy today? Yeah, I thought about this, and I don't know if I've just been really lucky or if sport just breeds good people, but I've been super lucky. Everywhere I've worked, I've just worked with some phenomenal people. And um, and some that I still call friends this day, but one standout who, you know, I think every time I do a podcast, I just have to mention his name. He's been on your podcast before, but Ben Sapel. So he's still my supervisor um, and he was my boss at the Brumbies. He was the head of performance at the time. And he, I listened to his interview with you actually. And the, the problem with him is just, he's too humble and he'll never, he'll never brag about all the knowledge that he has or all the research that he has and how good he actually is. But, you know, we still message probably three or four times a week. And um, anytime I just say, hey, like, what would what would you do in this situation? He's just got just, it's just nuggets of gold every single time. So he's definitely the standout. Yeah, fancy. Yeah, it was a great episode, Ben. He's, uh, he seems, like you said, a really good person and uh, a sharp operator. Um, on the in terms of highlights, you've sounds like you've had a fair few uh, with the amount of travel and, and different sports that you've done. And like you mentioned, NBA doesn't get more uh, of an entertaining sport than probably the NBA. But what would be some highlights that spring front of mind that um, yeah you're proud of that you've been able to experience so far in your career? Yeah, I think every time you're with a sport and you're you're there from day one of preseason, and then you see performance evolve you see and whether that's from it's an element that you directly impacted or from overall performance level seeing that is always a highlight and then 
so starting from preseason and then making it to finals and wherever you end up. Um, I still haven't won a championship where I've been, um, but it's coming. Uh, so this, I think seeing that's definitely always a highlight. So getting to um, a point where at the start of the season, you had no idea where the season was going to finish up. I also think, yeah, obviously the, the NBA was a huge highlight. Like that's just um, in terms of just seeing it from the back end and seeing how much goes into uh, the sport, how much, yes, it's the entertainment industry, but these athletes are still required to perform every single, every second day, sometimes five times a week. And the amount of work that needs to go into just looking after their bodies and then the amount of work that goes into just putting on the show and it's just, it's crazy. And um, you, it, you never, it never gets boring. So I'd say those are probably the highlights. Yeah. Were there particular moments um, at an NBA game uh, that, yeah, that you remember fondly that, that spring out or, or is it a, a general good memory as a whole? We had we had quite a few games where it was really down to the last few seconds and um, yep. and majority of them we won. Um, so those ones were always highlights. So I think there was one where <clears throat> we were down maybe one point. Joel grabbed the ball from the other side of the court, fell on the ground. I think there was a second left on the clock and he just single arms it all the way down the court. And the buzzer went, but it bounced and it actually almost went in but only because he threw it so hard that it bounced out of the rim. And that would have just been the most incredible um, basket if he'd gotten that and we would have won the game. But um, so that was, that was somewhat of a highlight. Yeah, it could have been, could have been a huge highlight. But then the two seasons I was there, we did make it to the second round of the playoffs each time, both to game seven. So it would have been nice if we'd made it at least to the um, Eastern Conference final. But hopefully this, this year, this is their year. With um, those three different sports at elite setting, like how does I guess the rugby experience going into the NBA experience help you preparing uh, A league athletes for you know for for the um you know for consistent performance like you said chasing that championship? What have you sort of learned from those different codes and how do you apply that with the current sport that you're in? I think one thing I've really liked about seeing different environments is that you're always learning that there's not just one way to do things. And the first thing you need to do, especially when you've never worked in sports before, is, is to a really thorough needs analysis, of course. So you need to understand, okay, well, what does this game look like? What are the physical demands? What are the physiological demands? And then also what are the technical and tactical demands? So there's always been this period of observing and, um, and talking to people whenever I've started a new place. Like you can't expect to walk in there and start telling them how things should be done or just start to, you know, give them data the way you used to get data and present it the way you used to or previous sport. So I think it prepared me well because you become quite curious and really start to look at the demands of the sport. And then also I've developed like quite a wide range of um, different methods of doing things. So having seen rugby union, rugby league, and then the NBA, I can come to soccer and, and say, okay, well, as long as I've got good people around me who really understand soccer, then 
well, I can figure out somewhat the physical, physiological demands and marry that really well with technical and tactical demands. And then also understand that there are many ways to skin a cat. So if they have certain ways they've been doing things and that's been working for them, then I don't need to come in and change that. So understanding what the sport involves is probably number one, but then also um, capitalizing on that, that experience around you as well. Um, but I think that's, that comes from going to different sports and becoming a little more humble each time and, be, and mm. realizing that, oh my gosh, I know nothing, you know, it's maybe it's like the, um, the definition of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Maybe I thought I knew everything when I was at Brumbies and then each time I've gone to a different sport, I've gone, oh gosh, I don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. And do you think, you know, at some point, like what would be the experience if you went back to a code that you're familiar with? At some point in your career, do you think that effect would, would come in again? It's a bit of a reset phase at the start, then Kruger effect, and then you build into it. You start to, once you find your needs somewhere else, you find your team of good people that um, you get your momentum up, or do you think that you'd sort of uh, sort of skip that stage essentially because you know the sport? Like, is it an environment thing, or do you think it's pretty much just a new sport specific thing? No, I think I'd definitely start again from observing and speaking to people that have been there because reality is I was only at one club with you know yes we had staff come and go yes we had players come and go but essentially the framework is the same and you know of course I thought it was the best program in the world when we were there but that's what worked for that cohort at that time that may look very very different now and still be really successful or that may look very very different at a different club and still be very successful so I think it's always really important to to know what's worked well there what are the practitioner's strengths and weaknesses there? And then how can I essentially fill those gaps? So I think there would definitely be an element of just observing at first and probably asking a lot of questions like, hey, do you still do this or is this still really important or how much time um, per week do you spend on this and, and so on? So yep. lots of questions. Yeah, great answer. Um, and then on the flip side, during your career, what have been some significant challenges that you've faced and have you grown or what have you learned from facing those challenges? Yeah, I think um, from the start, like especially back when I was doing internships, um, there were a lot of rejections. And I think at the time it wasn't, maybe it wasn't that common. So this is back in 2014. Um, mm. So maybe the, the pool of jobs or internships that were available was a lot smaller um, and there were still quite a lot of students. Like I think, you know, in some of my lectures, there'd be 300 odd students and that's a cohort that had just started that year. So they're pumping out, let's just say for argument's sake, 100 to 200 sports science students just at that uni every year. We're all competing for those um, internships to get experience because of course you can't get a job until you get experience. So I think at the start, I, there were a lot of few setbacks, few rejections, not even callbacks. And I thought, well, I don't get it. Like I've had this other experience. Why don't they take that into account? But of course I was just not the person they're looking for. So what I learned from that was <laughs> keep trying, persist and don't take no for an answer. There was a time and I told the story on the weekend, but um, I had my interview with Melbourne Rebels for my research project. And I think it was a Monday and Bryce Kavanaugh, who was the head of performance at the time, he said he was interviewing quite a few people for this research project, but he wanted to see what their skills were like. And 
So back then, this is this is pre R and Python being as big as it is now, and as useful in sports science as it is now. So Excel was the the dominating um, software, and he said, you know, I'm going to send everyone some data, and, and I'd like you to send it back to me, analyze it, and send it back to me. So I had been hammering hammering away on YouTube and Excel tricks for sports for months, just trying to get my skills up to scratch. So I I welcomed the challenge. But Friday rolled around and I still hadn't received anything from him. So I just created a fake spreadsheet, put in some um, dummy data, put, you know, some fake tests and then added like typical error, smalls worth while change and then showed like what, how, what magnitude of change was and a few other little bits and pieces and sent it to him. And I think he called me back within the hour and offered me the position on the spot. And he said, you know, the initiative that you took to, to actually do that. So I think that was a huge lesson for me and, and it, I really, it really took like, I thought, okay, don't take no for an answer. Don't sit around and wait for people to come to you because now working yeah. in a sport, like it's busy. It's very busy. And um, so don't, if you've contacted someone, you've called, emailed someone, trust me, it's not that they don't want to respond. It's just that they've got 47 other emails and that are higher priority in front of them. So <clears throat> to Bryce's credit, he was, he's a busy guy, but then obviously took what I did as a sign of initiative and then offered me the position. Yeah, how good. What, um, what a uh, a great story for, for anyone out there that's, like you mentioned, you're going to deal with rejection early on if you're putting yourself out there for the type of big roles because uh, they don't come around often. And it is competitive, like you, you mentioned, but the importance of, uh, I guess, it sounds like you trusted your guard and took a leap of faith and, and uh, yeah, like you said, took some initiative and it, and it paid off. That's great. Thank you for sharing that uh, story, Callum. Well, we better dive into the key topic of uh, our training load can determine best recovery method. And, and maybe perhaps we'll start with just the, the topic itself. Um, what does that mean to you? And, and break us down what, how you like to monitor training load at Perth Glory and how does it influence the recovery you might describe the, the A-League players? Well, I'll talk about training load more broadly, um, so not necessarily specifically to to Perth Glory, because I've done it many different ways, and I don't want to just talk about how I do it now, and and then maybe not everyone will get something out of it. So, like training load in team sports is pretty common, and I think probably that the easiest way and the most common way to track it these days is obviously GPS. So, going back to what I was saying before about understanding the physical or physiological demands of your sport and doing that needs analysis it's important to know what variables are worth tracking with that GPS. So um, you obviously get a myriad of variables, but um, which ones are going to be the most useful for you? And I mean, the good thing is you can speak to people, you can read lots of papers, and lots of papers published, especially when you're working in soccer, on what might be the variables that are worth tracking. And I mean, these days you can look at everything from absolute thresholds to relative thresholds. You can do your own analysis with the raw data and so on. So I think GPS, especially with their uh, reliability and their validity becoming a lot better as time goes on, you can use that pretty reliably. Um, I think sometimes people maybe forget um, the other elements of load. So load is obviously just duration times intensity, but essentially you're looking at like a stress on the body right and um i think there's so many other factors in sport that have an effect on on a player 
So stress is stress and um, players or the body doesn't necessarily see the difference. So if you say, if you look at an NBA player, for example, there's a lot of stress because a lot of stress to perform. Um, their load as such might not be as high as uh, a soccer player who's just played 90 minutes versus an NBA player who's just played 36 minutes for argument's sake. But potentially that pressure of being out there, then their accumulated sleep debt as well. So again, more stress added to the body. Um, then another big issue in the NBA, why well, issue, uh, whatever term you'd like to use, is that they spend a lot of time on feet and a lot of time shooting. So, you know, we, we found that we had players coming in on a day off, um, which was usually just one day in between games that would come in and just shoot for about four or five hours in the evenings. So how do you quantify that? They may have only moved 800 meters in that time, but that's still a lot of times where they are jumping, they're shooting, they're on their feet and they're not resting. So mm. I think there's so many things you need to, to consider when it comes to training load um, that, that isn't just from the GPS. Um, so, and then obviously the main thing is, well, actually, how's that athlete responding to that? So, um, what is their internal load? So that's because you could have two athletes do exactly the same session, but for one athlete, that might be a 10 out of 10 and the other athlete, that might be a six out of 10. So (laughs) there are so many ways to monitor internal load. And, um, I think like the most common is probably just the RPE method, but then the key piece there is what do you do with that data so if you're just looking if you're just getting everyone's rpe for the sake of looking at a overall team average that's fine but that's not going to tell you what's happening at that individual level so if everyone's rated it a six for that day and then all of a sudden john smith has rated it a nine or a ten and you know so let's just say is a standard deviation two standard deviations above the the rest of the group that can you can start asking questions and maybe have that conversation with him maybe see what else is going on with a few other things that you've collected as well but also you know that's from a group level you can also look at well what does john smith usually um rate so if he usually rates it an eight or a nine then that's probably fine you'd want to see like Mm. eventually that comes down as the player gets fitter and so on but i think that key piece there of training load is understanding the response as well so all the elements that add load to the athlete and then um how the athlete's actually responding to that yeah and the different programs that you've been in um have you what have you seen the most effective way to measure uh how the athlete like how well the how well recovered the athlete is or their freshness or their you know readiness to to perform um, yeah, is it a subjective check-in and um, uh, using your coach's eye and, and seeing how they are presenting and while you're having a conversation with them and, and, and you know, they're agreed on it, on how they're feeling? Uh, is it more objective with potentially high rate variability? Yeah, how, how do you like to sort of see how your athletes are responding to the training load? Yeah, look, there's always, um, I think there's always like best practice, of course, but then there's your environment with your athletes so in the nba for example like unfortunately there is no wellness there is no heart rate variability it's very challenging to get um the players especially when i first got there to to jump on horse plates 
So monitoring, say, neuromuscular fatigue, for example, um, using force plate metrics was also quite challenging. So in that situation, it really does um, become just conversations with the athlete. Uh, but there are some some back ways you could do it and, okay, maybe not the best way to do it, but let's just say you're always running similar sessions and similar to what I said with the RPE, and let's just say an athlete usually accumulates 500 meters for high-speed running in this certain session that you always run, but on one day suddenly they only accumulate 200 meters. I think then that can start a conversation with the athlete and you can say, okay, what's going on? But similarly, if it's an athlete who's usually like two standard deviations above in terms of some sort of high intensity variables that you look at, um, because that's their positional group or so on. But again, if one day they're suddenly sitting around the group average or lower, then again, you can potentially, you can assume fatigue, but of course, always asking, asking the athlete themselves. Um, at the moment, yes, do have the luxury of having wellness questionnaires. So that's a daily check-in and, um, and the the play obviously that's based on how honest the players are, but the players are quite good at that. So we can start to look at a few things. So how have they checked in in the morning uh, from a physio standpoint? So if we do certain checks based on hamstring strength, groin strength, and, and so on, and then they've also reported poor sleep, or they've also reported um, soreness, for example, um, then that's probably something we go, okay, maybe they haven't recovered well which again, speak to the athlete, but then you can modify training based on that. So, yeah. And, and I guess, um, more pre-season sort of focus being in a performance where you're trying to, uh, expose the athletes to, you know, expose them to high chronic loads of, of running if, if it's soccer and, and high speed running in sprint really stretch the athletes capacities. Uh, what would be. Um, you, uh, yeah, what would influence your decision making when you're trying to reduce load? Or well, not when you're trying to, but if you're, you know, thinking you're going to take a player out of a drill, was it uh, the wellness metrics that you you big on, and that, uh, and and then re- and how the athlete is feeling, and when they when you go and check in with them, is it more objective? Is it more just let's just see how they go and try and push them to to get out there? And yeah, you know, what sort of your approach over preseason? <sighs> It's such a tough one to answer because I think, you know, context is king. I think that's always always the case and there's always going to be a myriad of variables that are contributing to your decision to do that. For me, like I always have this performance first mindset rather than injury risk reduction. I know people throw that around these days and it's become what somewhat of a buzz term. But for me, consistency is the most important thing. Can we just get them out there training regularly? I'd you know, and uh, yes, of course, there's always that fine line, but oh, if we push them today, then that means they could lose a week of training or so on. But what can they do? So that they are sore. So we're looking at, say, posterior chain soreness or fatigue, and we're about to go into a speed session. It's like, okay, well, do they really need to run at 90 or 95% of their maximum velocity? Probably not work for the risk this week, especially if we looked at their previous three weeks and what what percentage they hit in those sessions, we can make that decision to to maybe say, okay, you're only actually going to hit 80% today and you're going to finish the rest of the session. So again, there's so much context around it. 
but especially in preseason, like I want to see guys finish, you know, complete 70 to 80% of preseason, which is a lot easier said than done, but you really do want them to build up that, that chronic load. Essentially that's your, your fitness, right? So, and then it's just about manipulating those weeks, whether you're looking at low uh, volume or intensity, um, for everyone to, to actually cope. Um, and then also, and going back to the RPE, um, I was talking about before. So at the start of preseason, you want to see the RPE is quite high with the training load, what it is. And then as training load increases, RPE should actually stay the same. So your session mm. should be a lot harder, but the RPE should be the same. It's where you start to see those RPEs go through the roof that you can start asking questions. And then maybe that would contribute to the decision about pulling a player back. Yeah, great answer. Thank you for that. And and what about um, when you, you know, from an educational point of view with the athletes, uh, perhaps you, you get the feeling that um, they're more just under-recovered or under-prepared going into that session opposed to overloaded. But uh, how do you go about educating, maybe developing players on the importance of you know, living an elite lifestyle? Yeah, so I think that's really important. Um, I got really into behavioral economics about a few years ago. And I realized that a lot of what we want the athlete to do is essentially just a behavior change. So I just read a whole bunch of books and, and looked at, okay, how can we actually change the environment to, so the athlete actually doesn't even need to think. So it's all sort of set out for them. So it's how we, we place certain items of food at the lunch bar. It's how we set up the whole gym. It's how like the flow of it all. So I think that's really important. Um, in terms of creating that behavior change, but the education piece is also really important because we only see them for six to eight hours a day, let's just say. So they've got 16 odd hours by themselves and that's essentially where the recovery happens. We only give them the, say the top end of the pyramid. If you're looking at the, the recovery pyramid, we can only really give them that. Of course, yes, nutrition and hydration, but they're only eating one or two meals with us. But then what they go home and do what they put into their mouth that's up to them so it is we do have an obligation to to make sure we are educating them so when i started at perth glory we um in the preseason, every wednesday we called recovery wednesdays and it would always start with a presentation uh, which i would give based on on certain things and it would just be a very short presentations because trust me i know players do not want to be sitting in long meetings um they don't they've already got to do it enough um with the coaches meeting so i didn't want to um, make them sit there with listening to my boring voice the whole time. So I made it engaging. I used a lot of photos of stuff they were familiar with, and I used all the, a lot of examples of stuff that actually happened, and um, and showed them, hey, this is this is important, and this is why, and this is the effect that it has on your performance. So, and that's one really big piece. But then also actually giving them the tools. So if I'm saying that, you know, you really need to make sure your room is quiet and dark, um, to sleep. Um, well, sometimes they can't help that. They've got maybe a baby in the room and um, the blinds don't close all the way or something. So we gave them, everyone got an eye mask and earplugs, and which were particularly used for on the road, but they can use them at home as well. Um, mm. So I think like, yeah, I actually forget what, what your actual question was, but I digress. But yes, um, it's really important to actually give that, that athlete the education piece. And, and know how to 
or, or try and at least create that behavior change in the athlete. Yep. Right. That was spot on. It was all about um, exactly that. Like and lifestyle changes and how to educate athletes, the importance of sleep and nutrition, like you mentioned. And I like that uh, aspect of influencing the environment and setting it up for them to, you know, yeah, I get the feel around they don't have to think that that's taking stress out of the athlete, which is another way that you can help them recover with less decisions to make. So that's a good one. I like that. Um, and in terms of the presentations, how making them engaging, I think that would be a, a you know, helpful, quick little um, thing to touch on. But uh, you mentioned photos and things that, you know, um, that would engage the audience that you're talking to would, you know, talk us through what that would look like. And you mentioned, you mentioned they're short and snappy, but, uh, how many slides, uh, how, how would you, what's your mindset going into it in terms of making an engagement and how would you manage the sort of group when you're going those present presentations to make it engaging, but also for them to have some key actionables. Yeah. So get rid of the writing. They're not going to read anything. You can have one number on there or maybe one word, um, and then just talk to the slide, but also images. So images, illustrations. So how can you sum your point in a picture? because uh, I'm not going to say all of them, but a lot of them will learn visually. And um, so trying to, obviously we can't do anything kinesthetic and they're going to be listening to me anyway. So I'm going to try and hit as many points as I can without using writing. The other one is players love to look at videos of themselves. They absolutely love it. And they love to look at photos of themselves. So actually getting footage of them um, you know, in the gym or getting food or something and then playing that because the boys will listen, they'll have a good laugh and then you've got their attention. So I think like trying to use familiar photos, but then also photos of themselves. Um, I think you always get a positive response from, from, I guess, the players like getting around each other, let's just say. So whatever you can do to, to stimulate that, um, sort of that cohesion point of view. And then you'll, you'll find you have their engagement a lot more afterwards. Yeah. And from a performance point of view, uh, you mentioned the importance of uh, building the training squad up to, you know, the majority of the squad trying to get that close to that 80% completion of preseason. Do you have other uh, performance metrics when you're going into a preseason that you're um, you know, keen on the group achieving over a preseason to you know, set them up for a successful season? So I think, are you talking mainly just on pitch and, and training variables or? Yeah. Yeah. Training variables it doesn't have to be necessarily soccer specific. It can be um, any, any sport, but uh, yeah, metrics, I guess, that you're um, focusing on, you know, hitting and, and targets. Yeah. So I think um, looking at, depending on your sport, looking at, um, you can look at the amount of time or maybe the amount of load, again, using uh, duration times RPE that you are spending in each element of your training. So let's just say uh, rugby union, for example, we actually looked at the percentage of time or the amount of load that we were getting, say, from a, a contact conditioning session in a week versus a lifting session versus a non-pitch rugby session. And mm. we wanted at the start of preseason, say, some areas to have a lot more amount of the, the load coming from there rather than from, say, a lifting session or whichever it might be. So for me anyway, obviously, um, soccer players don't like to lift that much, so I brought in a good couple of weeks of strength. 
where we didn't have that much pitch work uh, because they're always looking to save legs. And I said, well, we're actually not on the pitch that much this these couple of weeks. So we're actually going to go pretty heavy in the gym. And then later down the line in preseason still, where again, we dropped that, that volume, we actually upped the gym work again as well. So I think it's obviously understanding what the demands of your sport are and then how much time are you dedicating to each one or how much load are you are you getting from, from each one. But of course, like variable specific, you're always looking at um, the, the sport that you're actually working in. Um, yeah, if that answers your question. Yeah, no, it does. If, if a um, club's not tracking RPE, would you just simply look at the schedule of, of, the, of the week and just break up time allocated to to certain sections like craft, uh, meeting, so tactical, uh, then your main training sessions, the technical, and then like you break that down, like you mentioned with contact for rugby and and then gym, if you've got hour rotations, that's 60 minutes dedicated, dedicated to gym. Is that how you sort of cover that if there isn't any session RPA or is there a better way to, to go about it? So that's that's something I have done before where I've just actually looked at duration. So even yep. within the session, looking at how much time is dedicated to, because uh, I think that's important because, again, you could have a three-hour-long session where you haven't actually done that much load from like an RPE times duration perspective, but also from like a GPS variable perspective. But there's still three hours and that could have been two and a half hours spent on tactical so then at the end of the week let's just say if, if tactical was the focus that's absolutely fine you can show that okay 80 percent of the time this week we spent on tactical however if building physiological uh, physical capacities and being physically robust and being faster and fitter or something was the focus of that week and you could show the coach well actually we spent 80 80 percent of the week or more on tactical variables, like how we, we can't, let's just say, we can't get fitter if that's where we're spending our time. So yeah. it's definitely something that I've, that I've used before uh, to illustrate that point anyway. I'm not saying it's the best way to do it, and I'm not saying it's the only way to do it, but it is an easy way to do it because you're always going to have the GPS data, and the sports scientists should always split that between the drills. And it's very easy to separate out what's tactical and what's technical and what's so on and so forth. So if you ever need to get a point across, that could that could be one way to do it. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you for sharing that. Had, had to go down with the coach. They responded well. You got your minute. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Look, it's always a slow burn and somehow you need to turn it into their idea first and they'll typically come to you a week later and be like, Look, I've had a thought. And that's when they repeat your idea back to you and you go, oh, that's a really good idea. We should definitely do that. So... <laughs> It's typically how it goes, and there's no no insults of coaches out there. Um, but I just found that that's usually the best way to do it. Yeah, yeah. And to go back to the recovery aspect of things, for the athletes listening in, like what would be your recommendation for someone that perhaps has dabbled with an ice bath here and there, sauna, maybe they've had a sports massage, and, but they haven't really found their routine that, that suits them yet. Um, or where do you sit on things like active recovery, yoga, uh, mindfulness, uh, and then uh, we've talked about, I guess, the importance of nutrition and sleep, but just more, I guess, the passive and active recovery for, for the physical side. Yeah, sure. So obviously considering all those other aspects first, like what stress do you actually have imposed on you? 
not just, oh, I ran a marathon yesterday. Was it, did you take a flight in the morning, cross three time zones, then run a marathon, then take the flight back? Because you need to consider that that element as well. Like, okay, well, I sat on a plane for six hours or however many hours. Um, but so one thing I did, um, which I've done a lot before and still doing now, but was particularly useful in basketball was actually using training load uh, game variables um, to then prescribe recovery. And of course, factoring in all those layers of, of the additional stress on, on the athlete. And, you know, number one always being how can we actually just get them to sleep a little bit more? Where can we put in a nap today and so on? But I've split it up, you know, into assumed mechanical damage and assumed physiological damage, let's call it, or stress or metabolic, sometimes people call it. So if you think of more of your intensive variables, such as your hard XLs, hard D-cells, sorry, uh, your sprint distance, sometimes number of sprints, um, they're typically the ones that contribute to more um, mechanical damage. So you're looking at more eccentric um, muscle actions. So with that, um, we obviously had a, an outstanding team there. We had a, a couple of chefs that we'd work really closely with. And so they were actually part of our department. And um, and I was the conduit between our department and these chefs to ensure that what they were getting aligned with what we wanted them to get. So you could, again, assume with mechanical damage that there's a lot of inflammation and so on. So um, we're looking at repairing that tissue as quickly as possible. So you might put in some, some fatty fish that day into the lunch. So you're looking at those omega-3s and, and so on. And... Um, and then also looking at collagen supplementation. Um, but then also from a, from a passive recovery modality, you might you definitely look at more your, co- your cold strategies, so your cold water immersion. So looking at, I think, 12 degrees is, is now the more commonly used temperature and um, most um, has the most beneficial effects. So minimum of 12 minutes in there, 12 to 15 minutes. Um, and then you know, potentially some, some massage as well could also be helpful. But then if you're, if you look at your demands from the game and they're a little bit more extensive, so you're looking at your more physiologically demanding games. So there, there are a few ways to, to look at this. Again, it depends on your sport. I've seen quite a few uh, ways, um, to measure this, but you can assume that there's, there's glycogen depletion, there's acidosis so on so from that perspective you're actually looking at like replenishing glycogen um if there's not too much damage then you're potentially using some some hot water immersion or potentially on the safer side you'd probably go for more cold water immersion um and then you're also looking at say tart cherry juice supplementation in a sense you get the polyphenols but then you also get the the carbohydrates as well from that so that's how we did it a lot it um at the 76ers because it really is play, recover, play, recover, play, recover. And mm-hmm. yes, you can just throw spaghetti at the wall and hope something sticks, of course. And sometimes you are throwing the kitchen sink at the players because the reality is they have to be ready to perform 48 hours later, sometimes less. So, but I my idea was, well, how could we be more targeted with this rather than just saying, mm. do everything? Saying, well, what's the best thing we could potentially do? And then you can actually also prescribe top-ups on that as well. So this is something I do quite commonly now, is where 
let's just say rugby, let's take rugby for an example. Let's just say you looked at impacts or collisions um, versus some sort of running metric that you're interested in. And so I just built like just a very basic quadrant and see where each player sat um, on an absolute level. And then also from, um, let's just using a basic Z score from where they usually sit following a game. And so if they're up in the right-hand corner, you can assume high running loads and high contacts. So you're probably looking at a lot more of your um, like cold modalities, your nutritional interventions and so on. Whereas if they were low running load but high contacts, you still want them to do a bit of cold water immersion and potentially do something to attenuate that eccentric damage. But you then probably want to supplement those running loads. So that's where you can start to prescribe your top-ups. So, okay, well, you're doing top-ups today. It's going to be this many minutes and we're going to do these drills and so on. So whether that's from a I mean, I always way prefer to do um, the the sport-specific top-ups rather than just purely run conditioning. Um, So let's just say in the context now, we're looking at small-sided games within a couple of maybe like 60-meter builds just to get some um, high velocities in there as well. But then also, you know, you could find, say, talking about rugby again, Mm. where you find someone, an athlete has had low contacts but a high running load, you might actually want to do some contact conditioning with them. But then you're also looking at supplementing, you know, glycogen restoration and so on because they have had those high running loads. So I think you're not always just looking at recovery. Depending on your sport, you might actually be looking at, okay, well, where can we top these guys up? And I mean, so they've had an intensive game. You might need extensive variables and then vice versa as well. Yeah. And how do you go if um, if it's not in the culture yet where top-ups have been done for the you know, uh, how did you go about selling that to the athlete or even the coaches if they had apprehension with it uh, with getting them to do sprints and you know even contact I imagine uh, if it's the first time them doing it after a game there'd be some um, yeah, some challenging uh, conversations potentially between the athletes how did you go with that it's, I think that's my answer is always the same when someone asks something like this it's, always, it's a slow burn <laughs> so yeah. I think there's always an element of building rapport and building trust, whether that's with the athlete or the coach. And that always happens in the initial stages. And that's probably what I was talking about before when I was saying that you observe a lot and you ask people a lot. And um, so there's always that element there of of building the rapport. So when they know that you have their best interests at heart, they're a lot more likely to be receptive to your ideas. So we did um, finally get post-game top-ups and 76s, which was quite foreign when we got there. I think in other sports, you have more of the luxury, well, the other sports I've worked in, let's say, you have the luxury of having four, five, six, seven days in between games. So you typically do that on on the following day because um, then you can be more effective and a little bit more targeted because especially, well, even in basketball as well, actually, um, we wouldn't get the data until about four in the morning. And look, this is, I will just say as well yes the data we're getting in basketball is not very reliable it's all based on second spectrum and um time motion analysis and that wasn't congruent with the system that we had back at the facility so it was comparing apples and oranges um but it was the best that we had um so comparing that with obviously just a conversation on how the athlete felt um so i think there was always this element of players that didn't play much. They loved being on court and they wanted to train. So then the next day, 
um, they would come in. So if a player played more than, say, 30-odd minutes, they wouldn't come in the next day. Whereas if they played less than that, they would come in and they'd work with their individual coach or they'd do a, what we call a low-minute game, which is just essentially a small-sided game. And um, so then we can have that conversation with the, the coaches and say, okay, well, they had a lot of this last night, so let's just keep it a half-court stuff today. Or they actually need a lot of full-court transition-type work. So let's do full court work, then bring it back to, to this. Or let's, is there a drill that we could do where they have to run up and down the court, shoot, do this, and we're looking at, say, 90-second periods with 60 seconds rest or however you'd, you'd manage it. So you'd really work with the coaches um, based on that top-ups. So I'd say the next day stuff became a little bit more important because then you can be a little bit more prescriptive plus we're at our facility plus they can have all the recovery modalities, um, passive or active, available to them, including um, the nutritional interventions and so on. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, like you mentioned, each, each bedding can have its own nuance and, and how to um, work your way towards putting in these processes and, and working with everyone that's involved, coaches and athletes. It's um, yeah, it's great. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. You mentioned, um, I think it was Excel Sports or, you know, back early days where you're doing um, your own learning and, and practicing your skills. What's your favorite way to um, you know, sharpen your craft these days? And if you've got a, you know, or a recommendation for, um, for sport bonus out there, the um, methods to improve your craft? Yeah, um, there's so many these days. Like, barely need to go to uni anymore. So, like, so Twitter, Twitter has always been number one for me. I just think... If you're a sports scientist and you want to keep your finger on the pulse, you've got to be on Twitter and just follow the right people and they'll follow the right people and basically you'll just constantly see new um, publications pop up. Um, people will post people post great stuff and it's it's incredible that it, they're giving it away for free. Uh, so Twitter's a really, really good one. Um, yeah, look, definitely moved on from Excel and use Python these days. So I'm actually doing a course through MITx, which is just MIT's online learning uh, system and it's something like using Python for machine learning and deep learning or something, and um, but that's obviously a little bit more oriented towards my my PhD. Um, but there are so many online courses now that are that are free. If you if you want to pay for the certificate, you can. So I did one through Stanford called Writing in the Sciences back in my first year of my PhD, and that was probably one of the most valuable courses I ever did. Um, and that just completely reframed my idea of how to write a publication. Um, so there's so many courses and you just, just Google them and you'll find them or people will post them on Twitter. And then, of course, just going through through PubMed or, or Google Scholar. Um, but also there's, there's so many good um, practitioners out there that create their own courses. So I recently did... Um, uh, Martin Bushite's and Paul Larson's Science and Application of High Intensity Interval Training, um, which was incredible and just obviously like something I'm really interested in. And then I'm just finishing um, Matt Jordan's his second course, um, so it's called Jordan Strength. So that's a that's a really good one that he's got there. So basically helping somewhat strength diagnostics using force plates and so on, but. There's just so many avenues these days, and there's just so many, um, so many ways to learn. Like once, I think you have to like your uni degree is your ticket to the game, but then to stay in the game and keep playing yeah. competitively, 
you need to continually upskill and keep um, progressing yourself, not just for your current job, but how what you what level of skill you want to have and then bring to your, your next job and so on. So. Yeah. If you clearly um, do a good job of you know, functioning at a higher level and managing you know, many different things at once, what would be it from a productivity point of view? Is it get up early and then get your work done early? Uh, how do you, how do you, what do you find you've done over the years to yeah, maintain uh, constantly learning that I'm working in elite sport? Um, so for me, like if I've, you know, a whole own the morning or in the day, but if I find that I've had a productive morning, I'm a lot more likely to be productive for the rest of the day. But I think for any individual is about finding which time during the day are they most like highest functioning. Cause mm. for me, once it hits about three or four o'clock, I'm just like dead, you know, there's no, there's no point. Like something will just go in one ear and out the other. Um, so I know that my um, like optimal hours and day to learn and to work are definitely from say six a.m. till about three or four p.m. So that's when I'm definitely highest functioning. I'll be completely useless in the evening. So I'd say try and find what time works for you. Because um, for some people it might be getting up at five in the morning and trying to get two hours in before the kids wake up. But for others it might be you know staying up until midnight and getting two hours in after the kids have gone to bed. Um, so yeah, so also context specific as well. Um, but for me, yeah, it was just really that, that morning, that morning piece. So getting my work done then. Yeah. Yeah. And before we wrap it up, Carmen, is there anything that you'd like to mention on the topic of training load and, and prescribing recovery? Yeah, I think, um, the other one would be just understand the individual. So, um, I think gone are the days where we used to just give blanket recommendations for for the athletes so say everyone okay you've all played last night and now everyone's got to get in the ice bath so of course what i was talking about before looking at the, the specific variables so what actually happened in the game but then also understanding what does the athlete like or not like because okay. if an athlete hates the ice bath and they get in there and they just like almost go sympathetic rather than parasympathetic which is essentially any time you're trying to get the athlete to recover you're trying to get them to shift more over to their parasympathetic state which as an athlete you spend so much time in your sympathetic state so you have to activate your rest and digest system so if they get into the ice bath and they go more sympathetic that could have an opposing effect so it's actually about getting to know what the athlete actually likes um and it could be the same with giving them a protein shake or tart cherry juice they could absolutely hate it or they don't like the flavor or they don't like to eat after games or so on. So it's really about working with the individual and understanding that what are the what are their characteristics, um, what are their likes, dislikes, preferences, and so on. So get to know the athlete. <laughs> so so important, and then prescribe based on on that individual there, and then as well as the context. Yeah, yeah, love that. It's a great way to wrap it up. Um, to get onto more of the personal side, do you have pet peeves? Anything in your life that, or your professional life that fires you up? Well, one thing I always say is um, how you do anything is how you do everything. And I think that applies to everyone in your personal and professional life. But so say in the, in the performance context, you know, you see lazy athletes in the gym um, or lazy athletes in training, you're going to see that transpire on the field as well. 
So if there's a way you can potentially have that conversation with the athlete or correct laziness or address laziness, let's just say, in the gym, um, you can potentially help that that laziness where they probably don't quite get to the position they need to be in um, on the on the pitch, something during during the game. But that's just 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 one one example. I think there's there'd be a myriad of examples. I'm sure you could even think of where you've seen certain things that someone does transpire in other elements of their life as well. So how you do anything is how you do everything. Yeah, love that. And what about um, what's your favorite way to spend your your day off? Uh, well, we were chatting offline before, so I am six months pregnant. So at the moment, things are just feeling a little bit challenging. So I'm not as, say, active as I used to be. Um, but obviously, well, I have a dog and a fiancé, so um, just like to, to go out and take the dog for a walk. We live 200 metres from the beach, um, so a lot of beach time. And, yeah, at the moment, it's just a lot of resting and letting my body um, recover a little bit from, from work when I do happen to have a day off. So, unfortunately, nothing very exciting there. Oh, very exciting. Uh, uh, well, that probably is a good segue for the next question and, and my final question. What are you excited for for 2023? I can probably get your answer. You probably alluded <laughs> yeah. to it there, but a few things in the pipeline. Yeah. One personal and, and one one professional. Um, yeah, so um, expecting first child in June, which is very exciting. And then also professionally, um, yeah, we've done really well. So Perth Glory, where I think we're currently sitting seventh. So last season they came dead last and, um, and had a lot of injuries. And this season we're now sitting seventh. Um, and of course, I understand everything can change very quickly. Um, but so far, I feel like we're, we're progressing well. Um, we're fit, um, we're fast and we're strong. Um, so I would really, really like to see us make finals and, and hopefully, um, get some, some, some silverware or something. Let's see. Yeah. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Well, they're in good hands. Yeah. So they're a lucky squad and, and great work. And, and thank you so much for, for jumping on, Cohen. I really appreciate your time and, and sharing with us your experiences and across you know, multiple codes, but, but also around the world. Uh, I really appreciate it on especially on behalf of all the sports science and engineering coaches and those working hard for start uh, sport, but also aspire to. I think you provide a massive amount of value over the last hour, so I really appreciate it. Um, for those that want to get in contact, uh, is there a, a social media person? You mentioned Twitter. Is there a best place to get in contact, maybe to, for a follow-up question for someone that listens to the podcast? Yeah. Um, well, thanks for the kind words, firstly. But Twitter is definitely the best place. Um, I've had a lot of people add me on Instagram lately and it's just nothing sport related and it's very boring. I'm very boring on Instagram. So um, Twitter is the place. It's Carmen Colomer one and um, yep. and I try, I'm not very good at it, but I try and post stuff every now and then, probably a little bit more relevant to um, to my PhD, so a lot more complex systems analysis type stuff and more influencing tactical stuff rather than say physical variables let's say so um if you're interested in that maybe you get a, a bit out of following me so absolutely yeah we'll add the uh your handle on the show notes so for anyone listening into the podcast recording perhaps driving that's how i like to listen to my podcast episodes don't stress it you need to check the phone it'll be nice and you can click the link in the show notes 
yeah, thank you again, Carmen. Thank you for everyone that tuned in. If you tuned in halfway through, this will sit live on our YouTube channel. So before we publish it on a podcast in the next couple of weeks, you can watch the whole um, interview on YouTube. And our next interview is with Billy Hewlin, who is another sports scientist, actually. He's uh, just recently just joined the Collingwood Football Club. So looking forward to catching up with Billy. That's next Thursday at 10.30 a.m. Australian Eastern Time. So I'll see you guys then. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content, such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian from the Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I yep. often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then game changes, game changes, whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and you know and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary it unravels everything that i've been working with an athlete for yeah yeah another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the prepare like a pro live chat show here's an example with academy member rama davies the friendly conditioning coach at the box hill Hawks. Welcome, Rama, to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And, yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was, you spoke quite a bit about, um, perspective during that chat. Um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or, um, do physically that, um, you wish you either knew or did, um, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm, Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it yeah it certainly yeah has been massive for me now, and and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts doing a, a journal every day just a bit to say what I'm grateful for sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, might be whatever as an SNC coach, you know, if something's you're having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that, in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's, that's been huge. Um, I think 
I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm. I think I was a bit single minded back then. And, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things. And um, if I kind of didn't have that fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and, yeah. and yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review, or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.